Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. The greatest stand-up comedian America has ever produced and now has the best yet documentary of his life and career. You've heard of it already. It's George Carlin's American Dream. It's a two-part film directed by our friend Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio. And I am so happy to welcome one of our favorite recurring guests and humans back to the show, Kelly Carlin, who is someone uh, I can turn to for the big questions and the intricacies of minutia. She is a public speaker and an educator. She's a healer. She's a great broadcaster and podcaster. Her book of Carlin Home Companion and the solo show she did for it are both essential and highly praised. And we are always thrilled to welcome the great Kelly Carlin back to the show. Hi, Kelly. Hey, John, I always feel like I'm coming home when I'm here. Like, really, this is home because, uh, you know, I feel like we're family. So thank you for having me. And I'm excited to talk about this particular project with you because we're both, you know, it's kind of holds everything we both love, which is comedy and looking at society, but also the personal journey and evolution of 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 a human, ourselves and others. So I'm looking forward to this today. Well, I'm thrilled. I, I love the film. Um, and I told Judd that my only critique is that I deeply wanted it to be a lot longer. Um, how has this press tour been? And how many times have you been asked, if your dad was alive today, what would he say about what's going on? <laughs> Can you get a rough number of how many times you've been asked? If, if your dad was here, what would he say about all this stuff? I can't believe uh, 100, 145,629 <laughs> times I've been asked that over the last 14 years. Yeah, uh, yeah it's the big question. And uh, of course, but no, this has been great. It's been it's been an honor to talk about this project because it is it's everything I wanted. And that's so exciting when something yeah. works out like that. And, you know, John, my path has been to tell my own story, to speak my own truth and to speak the family's truth on stage and on the page. And I had this revelation after I saw the, the fine cut of it. And I said, I thought to myself, wow, this wouldn't be the shape it is without me having done my personal work with all this stuff. And then my artistic work, because I got to show up in the documentary with my heart wide open, being able to speak the truth about our family's history and our family's struggles and our family's triumphs and do it in a way which is 
what my work has always been about and your work too, which is inviting people's humanity and their authenticity, like giving people permission to open themselves up and to share our, sh- our shared struggle with things. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm super, super proud of that part of it. And of course the other part of it, which Judd and Michael wrangled and Joe, the editor with, you know, 60 years of, archival footage (laughs) it's just profound and amazing well i mean that's the whole thing right one thing you and your dad consistently have had in common is destroying bullshit but keeping the humanity and keeping it entertaining and not preachy and that is a very hard balancing act and it's something that i admire and go for in in my life and i'm i know you had many requests over the years to do the documentary um, I thought Judd's uh, movie about Gary Shandling in 2018, The Zen Diaries, was the best film of that year. So I've been so looking forward to this. Were there any specific bits or any specific elements that you knew going into it you wanted this film to include? Well, I mean, I didn't I really said to Judd, like, this is yours. Go do it. Uh, we want the full human being. We don't want anything pretty around the edges. And it's because we, like you said, the Shandling documentary, I knew Judd was capable of that. There was nothing in particular, but I did want him to make sure to never put his finger on the scale politically one side or the other. I didn't want this to become the, um, you know, well, we're progressives and we are, you know, let's admit it. We're progressives. My dad was, 99% 99% progressive. He was a libertarian when it came to free speech. And I think yeah. you and I are kind of probably in that, that pod too, but I didn't want to like, I didn't want to be heavy handed in that in any way. So, uh, you know, I kept an eye, eye, eye on that and, and, you know, made sure that that wasn't when I watched the rough cut, I had a couple of notes about that. But other than that, I really wanted them to kind of go for it. And, uh, and the only other thing I said to them is I don't want to, I don't want a cavalcade of comedian heads talking about my dad because there's so many documentaries like that. And it's like, it's charming. It's okay. But you know, you watch five of them and you, you start to get cross-eyed with it. Exactly. And when they, and Judd said when he got, when they got access to the Tony Hendra tape. So Tony Hendra and my dad sat down, I think it's 23, 27 hours of tapes to talk about my dad's life because Tony was kind of the ghost writer, ghost shaper of last words, my dad's uh, sort of biography, as he called it. And um, when Judd got a hold of those, they knew that my dad could narrate his story. And I think that's what's so fantastic about the documentary is basically my dad really does narrate it. No, it's beautiful. It reminded me a lot of uh, of the John Lennon documentary, Imagine, which John narrated himself. And there's so much you just said that I want to get to. But let me start off by praising how the film covered your mom, how the film showed that. Because, again, uh, in a lesser hands, this would have been a document. Oh, the seven dirty words. You know, it's like I've heard about the seven dirty words so many times. This film goes into the other stuff, which is what I care about. The film goes so deeply into your mom. It completely shows that your father's success probably wouldn't have happened without her. His genius would have happened. His success probably wouldn't. And I knew right away that this was going to be a great film when it went into your father forbidding your mother from getting a job. And I have to say, I think your father would totally approve of you being specifically critical of him and loving at the same time. And that sets the tone for the whole film. 
and completely reflects his work to me. Yeah. My dad taught me to be a truth teller. And there were some truths that were uncomfortable for my dad. And I go into that extensively uh, in my show and my memoir. That was our dance. That the personal stuff was uncomfortable for my dad. Don't know if it was generational. Don't know if it was his own personal guilt, which I know part of it was that. But that wasn't his thing. I'm an Oprah generation girl. He was not an Oprah. You know, he's not used to that. So that was difficult for him. But I know in the end, and like I used to say on my solo show, that people love my dad more when they see warts and all, when they see the parts of him that weren't the most progressive, woke, evolved human being. And, you know, that thing with that thing with my mom, he just didn't he was trying to protect me from being a latchkey kid. Like in his mind, it made perfect sense. He was being a good dad, being a good man. He was he was being a good dad. And in the 60s, men didn't even think about the consequences of what that means to a woman who's as creative and who's as um, hungry to change the world and to be a part of the world didn't even think about what shutting that down meant to her, you know? And of course my mother was not, you know, my mother was already propensity for alcoholism before that. This just like lit the fire of it, of course. Yeah, of course. You you know, you mentioned the politics of it. And to me, your dad has always been like Jesus and de Tocqueville in that he is claimed constantly by both the left and the right. And I know you're routinely peppered with people saying, can you believe this routine of your dad's from this special is so prescient today? But we saw it all through the pandemic with that bit he did about swimming in the Hudson and not catching polio because he was tempered in raw sewage from you were all diseased back in 99. You know, I'm still shocked to see just as right wing guys can read the Second Amendment and ignore the well-regulated militia part, they can watch that whole special and just say, oh, Carlin's got to be anti-vaccine and ignore the rest of everything he stood for. Your dad was so pro-science. And yet, like Jesus, they'll take one little bit out of context and use it to claim him as their own. Yeah. And then I found out uh, from my uncle that uh, they got the polio vaccine, too. Of course they did. Every kid (laughs) in America. Yes. Got it on the sh- got it on the sugar cube. Like, you know, like, come on, people like it's just so amazing to me. And you're right. I, you know, I, my dad is a Rorschach test, right? Your confirmation bias will be confirmed by George Carlin, because that's where we're at as a culture and as a as a species, really. I think America is really looking for a moral center again. And we yes. can't find it because all of our institutions have been deteriorating for 50 years. Those used to be our moral center. We used to be able to believe in God and the country, the flag. That all came apart, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the whole wealth thing. So there's no moral center. We're, 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 every single one of us is looking for it, even in people like Donald Trump. They were looking for the answer in that man. And, and so... You know, they they turn to someone who's like my dad, a great orator, a great thinker, and they're they're searching, they're looking. Please, please confirm, please, please help me find my center. And the reality is, is that my dad um, had his own moral center, certainly. And like you said, if you if you listen to all of it, you can clearly see it, but you have to take the whole package. Exactly. Of 
in order to find it. Yeah. Well, likewise, you know, your dad railed against political correctness, but his whole game was grounded in compassionate, especially compassionate for the least fortunate. So, so many people will take his rantings against PC culture and use that to justify their own indifference to the suffering of others. And that's with comedy, too. I think about the, the when your dad was on Larry King and Larry asked him about about dice and and your dad gave one of the best you know delineations of punching down comedy how dice went after marginalized people for a cheap laugh i mean i think if your dad was alive today i hate that phrase i'm sorry but i think if he was here today <laughs> i don't think he would dig chappelle picking on trans kids but i think he would totally support chappelle's right to do whatever material he wanted is that roughly about where it would be yeah that's what i've been saying john he would like he said about Dice Clay, you know, I will, uh, you know, I will support and protect his right to say anything. My dad was a pretty much a First Amendment absolutist, um, you know, but there are limits to speech from the government. We know that I've studied uh, First Amendment law. It's, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, but punching down, you know, people who are struggling to a feel safe in the world, to stay alive, uh, that don't have privilege around them to do that and don't have uh, a sense of uh, belonging in the culture, uh, he would certainly have something to say about that. And I doubt my dad, I think my dad would have something to say about the speech around pronouns, probably, or things like that. He would probably say something like, look, I respect that people want to be called certain things or, you know, that, you know, I, I have a name or something like I get that. But he would find and this is the problem. He's not here. He would find a unique way into that conversation to let us at least question the overriding control people want to have on people's yes. thoughts and speech. That's where the line would have been drawn by my dad. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the great Kelly Carlin. We'll be right back after this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm John Fugel saying this is Progress After Dark. You know, a lot of people always talk about your father. And by the way, I think maybe my favorite part in the whole film is this bit when you're a toddler and your father's on tape interviewing you about the Vietnam crisis. I think it's all, that's it. The whole, the whole movie is right there in that scene. 
um, the whole relationship, it's, it's, all, it's all there, all the promise and all the peril. But I, I want to ask you about something. I've always heard people say, oh, well, there was the old George Carlin, the clean-cut guy who did variety shows, and then he had this transformation and became the hippie. Uh, and I get that, but I always thought that there was another transformation that I think began with the Jammin' in New York album. That's where your dad said he, he stopped being a comic and became an essayist. I think there's really, I mean, he was always evolving, but there's three George Carlins. There's the first two we always hear about, and then there's the man he became in the early 1990s after the first deeply popular Persian Gulf War. I, I, I've always felt Jammin' in New York and the follow-up back in town were the, the real markings of when the third wave began for him. Yeah, and he even talks about it uh, which I love. They found some really small little interviews. I don't even know, like on people's phones, or I don't know what the hell that they were from, but um, where he talks about how he finally felt like a writer. Like that's such a that's such a mind blowing thing. Here's a man who's been writing his material already for twenty five years or whatever it was. You know, well since nineteen sixty, so thirty years he'd already been writing, and then he he finally felt like a writer, and like you used the word essayist because I always use that word too. I really do think he constructed five or six essays per special, like that was his thing, yeah. and um, yeah, and I, and he, you know, he even talks about that jamming in New York where you know the word artist finally comes up for him and and you know he's not a man to say pretentious words about himself but he claimed that word for himself because it is a different level it's not just entertainment and it's it's not just um look at me or look how smart i am there's always that part of it and he talked openly about the need for approval and acceptance and things like that but there was this thing about i've been thinking I've been looking at the world this way and I have to share it no matter what, no matter who shows up, no matter how many people show up. Luckily, he was a guy where he could make it also funny and a lot of people still showed up for it. So, uh, but yes, a hundred percent. And, you know, and then there's, there's, and then there's that next era starting, you know, with that area, but late nineties, early to early two thousands where, People complained about him being so nihilistic I know. and so dark. And really what I've figured out just in the last few weeks, John, by talking about this and seeing the documentary, like having Judd and Mike really lay it out for me, because, you know, I've been wrestling with this narrative for 14 years, trying to figure it out myself and to find myself in it and, and to understand him more as a person. But I, what I really, really get is, is that, he was so comfortable with being on the outside, that thing that he did where he kind of gave up on the species that we all yeah. see. And I certainly did too. I saw it as nihilistic. I saw it as like, dad, I've got to live on this planet. Give me some fucking hope, you know, but he got so comfortable there. And that was such a gift for us because he was just seeing what was and what had always been. And he was unafraid to say it out loud, make it into funny humor moments, sometimes not so funny. And we, we were the ones who were afraid to look at it. So we decided to call it dark and angry and nihilistic. Yes. And here yes. we are now. Here we are now, John. The last five years, it's all happening 
right before our eyes every single day. And we're, we shouldn't be shocked because it's always been here. And so really the question for me and for you, because you and I are so also dedicated in, in the evolution of consciousness. You know, my dad had a personal evolution of consciousness. He wasn't so interested in the societal. He kind of gave up on, I don't think we can evolve as a species, but here we are in a moment where we are asking the question, okay, so this is real. This is really happening. We can't pretend anymore. Uh, We can't distract ourselves anymore, even though we keep trying what the hell do we do with this? And this is our generation's, you know, moment to sit with this and see what happens. Yeah. Well, I I love that you say that because the the last act of the film really deals with that. And that's, that's my favorite debate. And that's how you can tell this film is made by people who love Carlin because they go into it. I mean, your dad would always say he was rooting for the comet, rooting for the comet. And you and I've talked about this. I never really bought it. I thought that was the persona there was too much compassion. I, I liken it to how Bob Dylan keeps writing all these apocalypse songs. Every Bob Dylan album, there's usually two songs about it, had the unholy apocalypse upon us, Old Testament shit raining down. But like your dad, Dylan makes it entertaining. It's not nihilistic. It's entertainment. It's actually fun to consume. I always thought if your dad didn't care about humanity, he would have just been a rich, successful hack. <laughs> Yeah, because the passion to do what he did, which was to think all day about this stuff and to take this stance. And as you know, John, we've talked about this. I, you know, and I even say it in the documentary, you know, dad, if you really don't care or if you've really given up, then why the fuck do you get on stage? Why the fuck? You know, and that's when he like was like, okay, touche, kiddo. You know, you got me, Uh, you know, scratch the surface. And there is this broken hearted man disappointed in his fellow man and what we're doing with this disappointed that we all turn towards our own selfish needs, our own accumulation of goods and material items and money in the bank. It's kind of wired in uh, and it's part of what made us so successful as homo sapiens, but we are reaching this very intense bifurcation point where the system is either going to fall into chaos, which it's the edges are here, the chaos is happening. It's either going to fall apart or it's going to reorder itself into a higher order. And this is what systems theorists talk about. And it's something I study. I know my dad studied it. We used to talk about it. And so for, I think part of him rooted for the chaos because at least we'll know then, where are we at? Are we going to reorder into a higher yeah. order and move on to the next level of species, whoever, whatever that's going to be, homo, whatever? Or are we going to just fall apart and maybe only have a million people left on the planet? And then maybe there's a chance again for the planet and for humanity. Who knows? Yeah, I, I, I think that's actually the one consistent theme of the Bible. Order and chaos. There is order. Man keeps fucking it up and throwing it into chaos. And God keeps saying, okay, you get one more chance. The garden, the flood, killing his son. It's the one, if you view the Bible as literature, which I'd like to do, it's the one consistent theme. And we all, we always get another chance. And that's where the science and the morality come together 
for me. I, you know, I, I also have to say this documentary does touch on your father's heroic cocaine habit. I think the first time I ever saw you perform, <laughs> um, the first time I ever saw you perform, you were doing a spoken word show in North Hollywood. And without mentioning his name, you did an g- incredible performance of a story that was dark and horrifying and totally hilarious and entertaining about your father bringing you out to the front lawn to watch the sky on fire. I have to believe again that your dad would totally respect that the film didn't pussyfoot around that part of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the end, um, you know, he was sober and he was in AA meetings in the end and he knows that the power of sharing your experience, strength and hope. And that's what 12 step meetings are about. Tell your story in order to inspire the person who's struggling that day with their exact same story. You know, maybe the details are not the same, but the struggle is the same. And I love that the film is called George Carlin's American Dream because this is part of the American story, mental health issues and addiction, chaos, uh, even domestic abuse. My parents went after each other a couple of times. You know, it was horrific to be a kid in that situation and to be an only child, especially. Um, We had it all in, in in our household. Yeah, we had privilege. Yeah, we had money. Yeah, my dad had this genius artistic thing. But that... That, that trauma, that terrifying space, that, that kind of chaos, that personal chaos, um, a lot of us have lived through that on one level or another. And that's why I do my work. I do my, my whole mission in life is to tell people it's okay to take your mask off. It's okay to share your suffering, your vulnerability, because we're all in it together. That's right. And it, your story can lift someone else's story up. And no one is perfect here. And one of the things about this is, is we put celebrities up on a pedestal so that we can pull them down and Always. make them human again. Always. Right. What I love and the, 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 the turnaround that I've decided on reframing this as is we're not taking my father off of a pedestal. We're merely lifting ourselves up to his level that you can be a genius and a lost soul at the same time and find your way through it. If you're willing to keep your heart open and your love for those around you alive, that really makes the difference. I love how this new film goes into your father's childhood. Um, I'm, I, I, and I was so sorry for the recent loss of your uncle Pat. I was so thrilled to yeah. have gotten a chance to meet him, but I, I realize yeah. I'm raising I'm raising my horrible child in the neighborhood where your dad grew up, which he called White Harlem. Um, I think they called it Albino Harlem when I moved in. But you know, I I didn't <laughs> I didn't know how abusive your dad's dad had been. That was something a part of the narrative that I really didn't know much about. And I'm curious. It seems like you are the archivist, right? You're the gatekeeper. You must know everything. But I bet that you, even you, keep on finding out new things about your dad. I think this, even just this whole experience of watching this documentary and just seeing these other layers of him and and making the connection between knowing his father was an abuser and abused his brother, knew that his entire life, and then when my dad doing a lot of cocaine and my mother was a crazy woman on alcohol and they used to go at it at each other, his own inner struggle with that, you know, that like, I can't become this raging guy because it lives inside of him because you can see it on stage. He, he knew how to turn on the rage and service of his art. 
Um, and really him having to learn how to manage that for himself. And, and of course, he didn't have a father. He did not yeah. have a father figure. And so when it came to being a father, I can't imagine what that was like to have this empty void of, well, I don't really have this role. I just had this very entertaining narcissistic mother <laughs> yeah. who, who tried to be both to him and, and she was, you know, and she, and she did, she did it. She did a it's good job, she loved you know, him. but yeah, yeah. it's clear she loved him. Clearly, clearly. Um, and I think that's also one of the most fun moments of the documentary is watching my grandmother, Mary on the Mike Douglas show with my dad. It is, it is, she, someone said to me the other day, she, if she was alive today, she'd have her own reality show. And I'm like, oh, and wouldn't it be great? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, you know, we, we talk a lot about, it seems like the big nouveau thing is to say, oh, look at this clip from Carlin. How, how prescient was he? Look at this clip. He, he was so ahead of his time and it's more relevant today than ever. Do you have any theories on why Lenny Bruce has not achieved mm. that longevity? I mean, if you tried to play a Lenny Bruce album for a millennial, the Christ and Moses bit would hold up, but so many of the bits just sound more like archaeology than modern entertainment. I think Lenny was at a very particular time and he was struggling and really talking about religion in a time when it was illegal to talk about these, you know, first of all, the words yeah. were illegal. It was very much more harrowing. And then you know, the reason he got hassled was because of going after the church in very uh, Catholic uh, cities, you know, uh, Chicago and New York being two of them. So there was the power of what he was up against systemically. And I think it became a personal fight for him. So I think it's a different thing, whereas my dad never let it be a personal fight. And my dad always talked about it in a more uh abstract academic way in the sense that he talked about the big forces within a capitalistic system that are oppressive, that are broken, that are um, authoritarian. And when you can talk about systems that way, he could have been talking about that a hundred years ago because those systems are the same systems. And then certainly right. the last half of the 20th century, uh, certainly after the, you know, Nixon and the Reagan era, the corruption of those systems and, and the dismantling of them in the 80s by the Reagan era, that's why he's so prescient and that's why it's, yeah. it's so relevant. And until we form capitalism, until we transform all the different systems that he talked about, education, military, healthcare, uh, treating you know, minorities, brown people, women, gays, the whole LGBT thing with respect, we're going to still having these conversations. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think in many ways, Lenny was the John the Baptist we had to have. So your dad and, and, and prior could be the Jesus's. Um, yeah, yeah. I want to I want to pay you a compliment that might not sound like one at first, but in many ways, I, I have viewed you as being sort of like Yoko Ono in the most positive way in that you both. You sustain the legacy of your loved one who is a great beloved artist while also creating your own very distinctive, very unique work at the same time. And I've thought this of you for a long time, that that you, you keep his flame alive while you also, you know, bring your own light to the world. And I, I love what you do and I love your writing and broadcasting. And I'm curious, how do the two influence each other? You being the keeper of George's flame 
and you shining your own light. It seems like the two do feed each other a lot in your work. Yeah, you know, I am inspired for whatever reason, maybe because I feel like I disappeared so quickly in my life in order to be of service to my family. And so finding who I am and figuring out who I am has been my life journey. That has been my work. Uh, First, personally, just to survive and have mental health. But I also see it, I mean, I've you know, Spalding Gray and Karen Finley are my two artistic heroes. Nice. Those are people who unzipped themselves on stage and let us see all of their neurosis and all That's of right. their pain and suffering inside of them. And that changed my life by seeing them. I suddenly felt like I was, I, I actually belonged on this earth. Yes. So for me, my, my personal inner revelations and, you know, detective work is my muse. My dad looked out at the world to find his muse. And I do. I'm fascinated by the world, too. I love to figure out how the world ticks. And I think that's why I studied Jungian psychology, because with Jung, both of you are looking internally, but it's always the individual and the collective. There's always a conversation between these two things. So I am fascinated by the collective, too. But in a different way, I don't need to talk about the systems and the forces of our modern society so much. That doesn't interest me. But this this figuring out who I am and the detective work I do about unfolding myself is is my joy, is the thing that I get excited about. And then what I realized is that that's really just all my dad has ever done. Also, he just kept always being super curious and looking within. But that thing he talks about in the documentary where it's like, oh, I'm not here to make people think. I just want people to see what I've been thinking about. I get that same little thing, too, like, oh, I can't wait to share this revelation I've had, because I think it really reflects the human condition in a more global way. And I think people will find themselves in it. But I'm proud that I figured it out and that I also having the gift of gab. I mean, you know, my grandparents, my Irish grandparents, my father gave me this ability to articulate complex, abstract ideas in a way that can really land in people's minds and hearts. That's right. I honor that gift. And so for me, it's just a dance back and forth, you know, honoring him, showing his humanity, honoring my own process, showing my humanity. We're all just playing the same game here, which is find the truth, share the truth. And I've been using this quote a lot lately, but it keeps coming up. Ram Das famously said, we're all just trying to walk each other home. And that's what I feel is both my work and my father's work in the end. Kelly, what is next for you? Well, as you know, the last three years, I've been doing this amazing work, building on my own personal evolution. I've turned it into a coaching program for women. It's called Women on the Verge. So I've been doing Mm -hmm. that for three years. That is evolving. That is growing. I'm learning how to be an entrepreneur and run that part of it and how to feed the world in that kind of way while feeding myself. Uh, But I am ready, John, to get back on the stage, get back on the page. I'm ready to once again, take my own life as inspiration and dig into it because I really want to talk about what I've just lived through the last 15 years, which was coming out of the shadow, finding my own way into the light my light, and to talk about the struggle that I have had 
and the joy and the opportunity to express myself and yes. to find my to, to literally find my voice and um, could not have done it without my father, obviously. And at the same time, it's not about him. It's about my own personal evolution and revolution. And this is the work I've been doing with these women for three years. And this is, the, this is what I teach, which is about authentic agency, finding yes. your most authentic self, and then having the courage to go out into the world to share it, whatever shape that is. And so I'm going to start writing some personal essays again and personal stories about that and uh, hopefully get a book and probably have some sort of some sort of version of a stage show around it. Dynamite. I can't wait. Listen, this platform is always open to you. I always love talking with you about this stuff. Uh, I think you carry on your father's legacy in the most uh, positive possible way. And uh, and I learn from you every time. Kelly, it's so good to see you. Thank you for joining us. George Carlin's American Dream is on HBO now and streaming on HBO Max. Namaste and all that shit. <laughs> Namaste, motherfucker, as I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> we will be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I am so delighted anytime we can get Johan Hari to come back and talk to us about pretty much any subject. He's a writer and journalist. We, we've talked with him about his excellent books, Chasing the Scream, Lost Connections. He's written for The New York Times, Le Mans, The Guardian. His TED Talks and now this viral video have been viewed almost 100 million times. The man's been praised by everyone from Oprah to Noam Chomsky. He was also executive producer of the awesome Oscar-nominated United States versus Billy Holiday and a forthcoming TV series with Samuel L. Jackson. But his new book is one that is going to garner him so many new fans in every corner of the world. And, and one of my favorite things about Johan is that uh, he's very upfront about his beliefs, but his work is such that it appeals to every possible ideology and demographic. And in his new book, Stolen Focus, he gives us a, a terrifying and fascinating examination of why we are losing our focus as people and how we might get it back. Why do teenagers find themselves only able to focus on one task for 65 seconds? Why are office workers, on average, only able to focus on things for an average of three minutes? This book is an epic journey to show how we got here and how we might get back if we can concentrate on it just long enough. Mr. <laughs> Hari, welcome back to SiriusXM. I'm so happy to be with you, John. Cheers. That's such a nice introduction. I feel like I should just give up now. It's lovely to see you, and I'm so glad to see you, albeit via Zoom. Uh, before we kick off, how are you? How is your family? How have you been during this very curious and menacing time? You know, it's, it, it's weird doing book promotion on the internet because by this point in a book coming out, I would normally be talking to audiences. I'd be looking into their eyes. I'd be seeing the ideas land. I'd be giving loads of speeches. 
And it's just not the same on Zoom, as everyone knows. Uh, literally nobody has ever said the words, oh great, another Zoom call. <laughs> and actually it's kind of related to some of the reasons in the book, but the, um, but yeah, so I'm okay. You know, on the scale of all the people who've suffered in the pandemic, I'm pretty low on the list. Um, but I spent most of it in Vegas, uh, which is a very weird place to spend a pandemic because I'm researching a book about a series of crimes that have, have been happening in Vegas. And um, Vegas is a weird place at the best of times, but during a pandemic, yeah. you, it's full of people whose response to a global pandemic is to say, well, this is the perfect time to go to Vegas. So you're surrounded by charmingly insane people, but it's been great. <laughs> it's also always the perfect time to smoke indoors with no ventilation. Um, <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I know I I, I want to say it's prescient that uh, this book is coming out right now when so many of us have spent our lives so far away from so many people and so intimately connected to our devices. Our digital world has been expanding nonstop for two years and our analog real world has been contracting. But what motivated you to write this book now? Were you working on this before lockdown began? Long before. So I noticed that my own ability to pay attention and think deeply was deteriorating. It felt like with each year that passed, things that required deep focus, like reading a book, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I started to look, I had a kind of disturbing experience with a young person in my life that you can ask me about in a minute if you want, but I started to, that really led me to think, you know what, This I've got to look into this. And I started looking at some of the early research and it's disconcerted me. For every one child who was identified as having serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children identified with that problem. Um, the average American office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. So I think, well, could there be something changing here? Has it, has it really always been like this? So I decided to go on a big journey all over the world. I spent three years traveling from Miami to Moscow to Melbourne to use my training in the social sciences at Cambridge to, to interview over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus. And what I learned from them is there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse. And loads of the factors that have been proven to make your attention worse have been hugely rising in recent years. We really are in a deep attention crisis. In fact, Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention problems, said to me that we need to start asking if we're living in what he calls an attentional pathogenic environment, an environment in which all of us, almost all of us are finding it harder to focus. And what I learned is your attention didn't collapse. Your attention's been stolen from you by these big and powerful forces. And to take that back, we're going to have to defend ourselves and we're going to have to go on the offense against these forces that have done this to us. Well, I'd love to talk about that and unpack it a bit because you do talk with Silicon Valley dissidents who actually talk about how they have learned how to hack human attention. Um, and your entire book is about how we got here. It's not simply a matter of <laughs> doctors who can't focus just giving out more and more ADHD diagnoses. No, I mean, we are changing as a species. And you mentioned the young person. I'm guessing this is the young person who had a fondness for Elvis once we're talking about. Yeah, this is my godson. I call him Adam in the book. And, you know, when he was nine, he developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis. I never understood where it came from. Uh, and what was particularly cute about it is that he didn't know that Elvis had become a cheesy cliche. So he did it with all, he was singing like Viva Las Vegas with all the heart catching sincerity of a nine year old who believes he's being cool. And at nights when I would tuck him in, 
he would get me to tell him again and again the story of Elvis's life. I tried to skip over the bit at the end where Elvis shits himself to death on the toilet. And one night he said to me, he looked at me very intensely and he said, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I said, yeah, sure. In the way that you do with like nine-year-olds knowing that tomorrow it'll be Legoland or whatever. And he said, no, do you really promise one day you'll take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that again for 10 years until everything had gone wrong. So Adam had dropped out of school when he was 15. And he just, by the time he was 19, it's, it was like he had fractured. It was like in that decade, so many of us had fractured and it happened in quite an extreme way to him. He spent literally all, almost all his waking hours alternating between YouTube, WhatsApp, Snapchat, porn. And it was like he was sort of whirring at the speed of Snapchat where nothing still or serious could touch him. And one day we were sitting on my sofa and I was trying to talk to him all morning and I just couldn't get any traction. And to be honest, I wasn't that much better. I was sitting there looking at my devices and I suddenly remembered this moment from 10 years before. And I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, what? He didn't even remember this moment when he was a little boy. Of course. And I said, no, no, let's go. We've got to break this numbing routine. Let's go all over the South, but you've got to do one thing. When we go, you've got to promise you'll leave your phone in the hotel because we can't, there's no point going if you're just going to be staring at your screen all day. And he promised. And two weeks later, we took off. We landed in New Orleans. We went there first. And a couple of weeks after that, we arrived in Graceland. And when you, when you get to the gates of Graceland now, this is even before COVID, there's no uh, physical person to show you around anymore. That's right. What happens is they ha have, you been, have you been, John? Many times, but not, yeah, exactly. not in the so, last 10 years. Not yeah. in the last 10 years, but many I times. I see. So, so as, as you know, they, they hand you an iPad, right? And you put in the earbuds and the iPad shows you around. So it says, go left, go right, go, you know, and in each room, it narrates something about the room. And everywhere you are, it shows you a, a representation of that room on the screen. So I'm walking around Graceland and everyone is just staring at their devices and I'm getting more and more sort of tense. I'm trying to make eye contact with someone to go, oh, this is funny. We're the two people who traveled thousands of miles and actually looked at what we traveled to. But I was finally able to make eye contact with someone. And then I realized he had only, he'd only looked away from the iPad in order to take out his phone and take a selfie. So mm -hmm. we, we got to the jungle room, which is Elvis's favorite room, was Elvis's favorite room. And there was a Canadian couple next to me and the husband turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I, I burst out laughing. I thought he was kidding. <laughs> and then I look and they're just swiping back and forth. And I said to him, but hey, sir. And they're in the room. They're in the room. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is exactly the tone I adopted. I was like, wait, sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head. Because we're literally in the jungle room. You don't need to look at it on your screen. Look, it's actually here. And they just backed away. And, and I turned to my godson to sort of laugh about it. And he was in the corner looking at Snapchat. Because for the minute we landed, he could not stop. And I stormed up to him and I tried to grab the phone off him unsuccessfully. And I said, look, I know you're afraid of missing out. But this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not showing up at your own life. You're not present at the events of your own existence. And he stormed off. So I wandered around Memphis on my own for a while. And I found him that night in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying across the street. And I apologized to him. He was sitting by the swimming pool. And he was just staring at his phone, flicking from app to app. And he said to me, I know something's really wrong, but I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought, 
you know, I need to start looking into this. And that's when that three-year journey, which involved meeting all these scientists, it involved taking three months completely off the internet myself. But what was interesting is one of the most surprising things I learned, I learned a huge amount about the tech component of how our attention is being invaded. But I also learned that that's only one of the 12 factors that's doing this to us. There's a much broader array of factors that are harming our ability to focus and pay attention from the food we eat to the hours we work, from the sleep we don't get to the air we breathe, which is filled with pollutants that damage your ability to focus. Actually, tech is not the biggest, although although some components of tech are really important. I came to think that I, well, I was persuaded by Professor Barbara Domini, one of the leading scientists in France, who said to me, it's not possible to have a normal brain today because yes. of the ways our brains are being invaded. But the most important thing is there are solutions to this, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to. I'd love to. But yes, and she's one of France's most distinguished scientists. I mean, is she right that there is no way we can have a normal brain today? I think if we don't change, I think she's right. Uh, but as Professor Domini would say, we can absolutely deal with these factors, but it's going to require, to, we've got to respond with all of the 12 factors that are damaging our attention and focus. We've got to respond at two levels. There's all sorts of things we can do as individuals, isolated individuals, to protect ourselves and our kids. We can play defense, right? And that will help to some degree, and there's, I'm passionately in favor of it. But we've also got to go on offense. We've got to take on the forces that are doing this to us. At the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day, and then they're leaning over and going, hey, buddy, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to go, right, I'll learn to meditate, but we need to stop you pouring itching powder on me, you motherfucker. And this is why we've got to, we've got to deal with these deep underlying factors. This can all sound a bit fancy, so should I give a specific example? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, you're, yeah, I want to go through some of the causes, but, but, but please yeah. do, because I mean, well, this book is, I, I want to just quote one of the experts you, you talked to, Professor mm-hmm. Earl Miller of MIT calls it mm-hmm. a perfect storm of cognitive degradation. And what I like about the approach of the book and why I wanted to go deep on it with you is that most of us probably see our inability to focus as a personal failure and an, an inability to pull ourselves away from our screens and back into our lives. And a lot of us of a certain age are very hard in ourselves for this because you're the first person to actually come out there and actually talk about how our focus has been stolen. So yeah, please, I'd love to talk about some of these 12 causes. You know, it's so interesting you say that, John, because when I started working on this book, I thought that the problem was basically that I was weak, that I just didn't have good enough willpower. And I had a really sad moment very early in the research for the book. There's a guy called Professor Roy Baumeister, who's at the University of Queensland in Australia. And he's the leading expert in the world on willpower. He wrote a book called Willpower, right? He's done a huge number of research on this. So I went to see him. I said, you know, I think you're doing this book about attention. And he said, oh, it's interesting you should say that because I've just found I can't really pay attention anymore. I just play Candy Crush on my phone all day. And I was sort of sitting there, I was like, wait, didn't you write a book called Willpower? <laughs> if, you, if you're sitting there saying you play Candy Crush all day, you know, and I sort of realized, <laughs> actually, when you look at the evidence, if you, people are listening to this, they can't focus, they can't pay attention, it's really thwarting their lives. This is not your fault. This is happening to all of us. So you mentioned Earl Miller, who explains a really, Professor Earl Miller, who explains a really interesting example of one of the 12 causes that I write about in Stolen Focus. So Professor Miller is one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. I went to interview him at MIT. And he said to me, there's one thing you need to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed significantly in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change on our time frame. 
you can only think about one or two things at a time. But what's happened is we've fallen for a mass delusion. The average teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens is Professor Miller's colleagues get people into labs and they get them to think they're doing lots of things at the same time. And when they do that, they always discover the same thing, which is you can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very rapidly between those tasks. But it turns out that comes with a really big cost. The kind of technical fancy term for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll remember less of what you do. You'll be much less creative. You just, you're much more likely to screw it up. And this feels like a small effect. Like if I just glanced at my text messages now while I'm talking to you, I won't do it. But if I did, that's like such a small thing. Well, it's 20, you know, three seconds I glance and then come back to you. But that requires me to refocus my brain on the text message. Oh, my friend Rob just texted me, right? Then I have to refocus on you. And it turns out there's, a, there's lots of evidence that this has a really big effect. Just receiving eight text messages an hour causes a 30% reduction in your brain power, your ability to retain what you've done. Or just think about one small experiment that really drove it home for me. It's a very small experiment, but it's backed up by wider evidence. Hewlett Packard, the printer company, got a scientist in and he split their workers into two groups. And the first group was told, just do whatever your task is for the day and you're not gonna be interrupted. And the second group was told, do whatever your task is and you're going to have to answer a fairly heavy amount of email and phone calls. So basically the lives most of us live. And then at the end of it, they tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had not been interrupted scored on average 10 IQ points higher than the group that had been interrupted. To give you a sense of how big that is, a comparison point, if you and me sat together now and got stoned, we just smoked a fat spliff, our IQs would go down in the short term by five by five points. So being distracted is twice as bad for your intelligence as getting stoned. You'd be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time than sitting at your desk, doing lots of things at a time and not getting stoned. Obviously, if you really want to focus, do neither. But this is why, as you quoted, Professor Miller said, we're living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation. There's a guy called Professor Michael Posner at the University of Oregon who discovered that if you're interrupted, it takes on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before you were interrupted. But most wow. of us never get back to, never get 23 minutes spare. So we're constantly living at this depleted level. And I think a lot of people listening will sort of know something's going on with their attention, but it's hard to connect it to a feeling of malaise they have. And I would just say the reason I think this subject, one of the reasons I think this subject is so important. So I'd say to anyone listening, Think about anything you've ever done in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever the thing you're proud of is, it required a lot of sustained focus and attention. And when attention and focus break down and there's good evidence they're breaking down, your ability to achieve your goals and solve your problems breaks down. Now, that's bad enough at a personal level. We're also seeing that at a big collective level, as anyone who's watched the news in the last five years will have noticed. And this is why this is such an urgent question, and it's why we really need to look at the solutions that are out there that I've seen in practice and can work. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Welcome back. This term that's only really come around in the last 20 years, multitasking, 
has come to have connotations of virtue inherent in it. How well can you multitask? And it seems to be part of the overall hacking of our minds that has led us to this new normal. I mean, you give your your 12 causes behind our lack of focus. I'm not going to ask you to do a deep dive on everyone. People should read the book. But, you know, number one is the increase in speed, switching and filtering, which is not the same as your fifth one, the disruption of mind wandering. Is it what is the distinction between mind wandering and then just the increase in the switching and filtering and speed? One of the factors was I just hugely slowed down. There's an enormous amount of evidence that the way we live has been speeding up and speeding up. We talk faster than we did 20 years ago. We walk faster than we did 20 years ago. The one study, one small study found that a typical American college student only does any one task for 65 seconds. We're in this tornado of speed. And there's really good evidence. The more you speed up, the less you can pay attention, the less deeply you can think. And just slowing down profoundly restored my focus. But it was interesting because you asked about mind wandering, which is one of the one of the real kind of revelations to me in Provincetown. So I thought when I went to Provincetown that I was going there to clear out all these distractions in order that I could do sort of what's called spotlight focus. So spotlight focus is when you filter out everything around you and narrow your focus down to one thing. Like I'm in a room, yes. a hotel room, I can see, you know, I can hear the air con. I could look out the window and see people by the pool. Um, I'm not doing any of that. I'm filtering all of that, that out and I'm spotlight narrowing onto you because we're talking, right? So that's one important form of focus. And that massively improved in Provincetown. Uh, talking in the book about how we can all get to that situation because obviously no one listening can just quit their life for three months. But one of the things that surprised me was that a different kind of focus became just as important to me in Provincetown. So after I had been there for about a month, I started just going away. I had brought um, an iPod, which is funny, it seemed like such a futuristic invention when I first got it. And then by the time I went, it was like something from the Ark. I would take my iPod uh, and listen to audiobooks. But then I decided after about a month, I'm just going to leave that. And I'm just going to go for really long walks with just nothing to stimulate me. And at first I felt kind of guilty. I was like, well, this is not why you came here. You came here in order to <laughs> take your focus, right? But actually on these walks where I was mind wandering, I was having so many new ideas. I felt so fertile. I felt so creative. And when I left Provincetown, I interviewed loads of experts on mind wandering. And it turns out mind wandering is really essential mental activity for making sense of the world. When you're just wandering around and your mind isn't focused on anything in particular. Yes. Um, your mind is processing the past, it's anticipating the future, it's making sense of your life. And what we've done is we, we're in the worst of all worlds. We're neither spotlight focusing nor mind wandering. We're just yes. jammed up all the time with switching. What did that guy just say on Facebook? What's on the TV there? What was this text? What's just happening? Oh, wait, what did that notification say? We're constantly jammed up, which means that we, yeah. we, we, we feel like our lives aren't making sense because we're not thinking deeply and we're not getting the space to process what's happening to us. So we're jammed up and jammed up all the time, which is terrible for your ability to just feel good and to make sense of your life. Yes, I completely. I, I, I missed about half of that because I was on Instagram. But uh, yes. I mean, <laughs> well, no, but how many, how many times have people thought, OK, I want to go for a walk. What podcast should I listen to? And again, even when you're trying to do something for yourself, what external electronic media sources am I going to use to lubricate my time as a human? 
but I'm very glad you mentioned that it's, it is not just tech because you talk about our deteriorating diets and rising pollution. I think our deteriorating diets are, uh, of course, a subject that need to be discussed in relation to a host of social ills. But what did you discover in your research in terms of the human attention span and the stuff we put in our bodies? This is so interesting to me. And I've got to be honest, this is the one of all the causes, the one I most struggle with. And you, you can't see this, John, but there's a KFC bucket in the corner of this room, which will give you some sense of how much I struggle with this. Um, so I interviewed. <laughs> no, I can listen. I've had I've had British food. I understand why you want that. Go, go on, please. I'm actually in Miami at the moment, and it's a, it was a particularly um, disgusting KFC bucket. Can I, I just say, say. The, the first time, the first time I ever went to a KFC in my life was in London. I'd never did it here, oh, and I was there once, really? and I got desperate in, in Islington. Yes, but please, please go on. <laughs> so I interviewed a load of these. Uh, there's this new movement called nutritional psychiatry. A psychiatrist who investigating how what we eat affects our mental capacities. So I interviewed loads of these nutritional psychiatrists, and. I learned that the way we eat is profoundly damaging our ability to focus and pay attention in three really important ways. The first is the way we eat. Let's imagine you have a typical American or British breakfast. You have a sugary cereal and what, or white bread, right? What that does is it releases a huge amount of energy into your brain really fast. It feels great. You're like, oh, I'm finally awake. Yeah. But what that means is that when you get to your desk or your child gets to the desk and the last quarter of the book is all about our kids and what's happened to them. When you get to your desk, you get a huge energy collapse, right? Cause you've, um, the way one nutritionist put it to me is it's like we're putting rocket fuel into a mini. It'll go really fast and then it'll just stop. And what you then experience when your energy crashes is what's called brain fog, where you just can't think very clearly. Your head is foggy. Um, and what's happening is because of the way we eat, we're living on a roller coaster of energy spikes and energy crashes. Correct. So we have these long patches of brain fog throughout the day. Whereas if you eat food that releases energy more steadily, your attention and focus will be much better. The second way is that the current food supply system we have hugely deprives us of the nutrients that you need to, for your brain to develop optimally. And the third way, which is even more disturbing, is that the food we eat doesn't just lack the nutrients we need, it actually contains chemicals that act on us like drugs. There was a really disturbing study in Southampton in Britain that in 2007. They got 297 kids and they split them into two groups. One group was just given water and the other group was given a, a cocktail, not alcoholic, obviously, a, a water laced with the food dyes that are contained in the kind of stuff our kids eat every day from supermarkets, yeah. candies. And the kids who drank the food dyes were significantly more likely to become manic, hyperactive. So you can see how the food we eat it, and there were so many factors that I learned about for my book, Stolen Focus, that I didn't even think of as being related to attention, which are actually profoundly linked to our, to our ability to focus and pay attention. What I, what I love the most is, and you know this in the book, to really solve the problem, we need to see this as a structural issue that requires societal solutions, which you take on, uh, on how we can go about attacking this on a community level, but just for our listeners. And, and I'd love to have you back again, Johan, because I barely scratched the surface and I'd love to, to go even deeper on this book. It's so important right now. But if I could ask you briefly, uh, what advice would you give to individuals that are struggling to regain their focus beyond reading your excellent book? What, what is something that people can begin to do? Because this is about changing habits, which can be the hardest thing for homo sapiens. 
So I go through two, I go through dozens of examples, but I'll give you an example, one that I'm doing literally now. You can't see this from the angle we're at, John. Sorry, give me a second. So I'll give you an example of something I'm doing literally now. So in the corner of my room over there, I've got something called a K safe. It's a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn the dial at the top, and it will shut you off. It will lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day. I use that three hours a day. I will not sit down to watch a film with my partner unless we both imprison our phones. I try to force my friends when they come around for a meal. Let's all lock away our phones. And it's really hard at first, but then you start to experience the pleasures of focus. And the pleasures of focus are so much greater than the pleasures of being distracted and being addled. But I want to stress to people, I'm passionately in favor of these individual changes. I've made lots of them, but on their own, They will only get you so far. We've got to take on the forces that are doing this to us. So think about one as simple as, which we all know about, social media. All social media companies are currently designed on one business model. It's very simple. John, the more times you pick up your phone and the longer you scroll, the more money they make. That's it. That's their business model. Get you to pick up your phone more and scroll longer. So all of their engineering power, all of their algorithmic genius is geared towards one thing figuring out how to do that, how to make you pick up your phone more and scroll longer, and more importantly, how to do that to your kids. But social media doesn't have to work that way. I spent a lot of time interviewing the people who designed key aspects of the world in which we live. And there's an analogy that really helped me to think about this. So you'll remember, John, I can just remember it. It used to be totally normal that people had leaded gasoline in their cars and they painted their homes with leaded paint, right? I remember my mother buying leaded gasoline. And it was discovered that exposure to lead in the air from gasoline and paint fucks up kids' brains, particularly damages their ability to focus and pay attention. So there was a movement mostly of moms who just said, we're not going to tolerate this. You're not going to do this to our kids' brains. Ban leaded paint and ban leaded gasoline. Now, it's important to notice what they didn't say. They didn't say ban paint, ban gasoline, right? You're in a home that's been painted, so am I. They banned the specific element that was raiding and fucking their kids' attention. That's right. In the same way with social media, we don't want to ban social media. Social media has many good things about it. We're not all going to convert and join the Amish. But what we can do is target the specific aspects. At the moment, because of that business model, social media is designed to hack your attention. This isn't my view. This isn't the view of the distance. This is what they admit. Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial funders of Facebook investors, said, we designed it to maximally invade people's attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids' brains. So I interviewed Asa Raskin, who invented a key part of how the internet works. And he said to me, look, the first step of the solution is simple. We've got to ban the current business model. Just like we don't allow lead, to, we don't allow us and our, our, us and our kids to be exposed to lead. We should not allow a business model that is premised on figuring out the weaknesses in your attention, hacking them and selling them to the highest bidder. Just ban it. And I said to him, but wait, if we do that, what happens the next day? Do I open Facebook and it says, sorry, guys, we've gone fishing? He said, of course not. But what happened is they would have to move to a different business model. And there's plenty of other models. One is subscription. We all know how HBO or Sirius XFM work. One is subscription. Another model, think about the sewers. Before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets and people got cholera. So we all pay to build the sewers and we all own the sewers together. Now, it may be that like we own the sewage pipes together, we want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention. But whatever different model we move to, the key thing is, 
all the incentives for social media change. Suddenly, these companies aren't asking, how do we raid and invade John's brain? How do we raid and invade his kid's brain? Suddenly, they're saying, what does John want? Oh, John wants to be able to pay attention. Okay, let's design Mm -hmm. an app to make it easier for him to pay attention. Oh, John wants to be able to meet up with his friends. Okay, let's design it so it actually connects people offline rather than Mm -hmm. keeping them staring at screens and feeling like shit. There's all sorts of ways in which this changed. But of course, these companies will not change of their own accord any more than the lead industry was going to go one day. That's right. Guys, I think we've just made enough money, right? That's not how it works. I argue in Stolen Focus passionately for individual changes, but also I argue that just like we needed a feminist movement for women to reclaim, and still need, of course, the feminist movement to for women to reclaim their bodies and their lives, I argue we need an attention movement to reclaim our minds. Yes. And it requires us to get into a different frame of mind about our attention. If you're struggling to pay attention, it's not your fault. This is happening to all of us. And we've got to make small changes, but we can't stop there because we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can reclaim them from the 12 forces that have been stealing them from us. We do not have to tolerate living in a society where the average worker focuses for three minutes and where our kids with each year that passes are becoming more and more addled and unable to focus. It doesn't have to be this way. We can fight back. We've got to fight back. Attention is one of the most precious powers that human beings have and to let it crumble in our hands would be madness we've got to fight back and we can reclaim our attention i went to so many places that had begun this fight for the book we absolutely can do this Johan Hari, it is always a great joy and honor to have you with us i love this book i didn't think i could i could prefer one to your last two but it's so Uh, dynamite and it is so the right book at the right moment we had even talked about half of the subjects you cover and and uh, i'd love to have you back and talk about the role of dopamine in all this and to go even deeper on your wonderful book again and write this down if you can't focus the book is (laughs) stolen focus stolen focus why you can't pay attention and how to think deeply again johan hari thank you for joining us and thank you for Uh, the great public service in this latest excellent book i can't wait to see what comes next yeah it's funny john i keep getting people emailing me going I don't have enough attention to read your book. Could you send me a brief summary? I'm like, no. <laughs> they can read the audio book. I send them the link to the audio book. <laughs> so funny because I have actually designed a really convenient app so everyone can get a digest of a nugget of each one of the chapters every day. So it's it's fantastic. you got to keep coming back for more, but it really works. It's squirt. Thank you so much, Ron. <laughs> Thank well. you so much, John. What a delight. Hooray. Thank you. Thank you.